Welcome to Bite Size, a series where we talk to traffic and mobility experts, discuss innovation, and highlight business leaders within transport and city planning. Hello, my name is Emily Bobas, and welcome back to another episode of the Bite Size Podcast. Transport and infrastructure is not known as being cool. And often, infrastructure projects can be a very siloed process with tensions between the project itself and the community that it's meant to be serving. But my guest today thinks that, at the end of the day, it's the small, unsexy stuff that makes the biggest difference to all stakeholders involved. Today, I'm talking with Misha Gabriels, who is the CEO of Movin, a company that is creating space by managing traffic disruption. Misha raises some fantastic points around how we can better plan the way we upgrade our cities and the way that we approach construction projects. The conversation also poses some pretty hard-hitting questions. Are we approaching infrastructure projects from the wrong angle? Are traditional methods of outlining projects 10, 15, 20 years in advance still the appropriate approach? And then lastly, how can we ensure that the infrastructure projects involve people in local communities? Misha, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. No worries. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to quickly kind of have you run through a little bit about your career journey and a little bit about moving as well. Yeah, sure thing. And it's a, it's a bit of a kind of interesting journey, I think, probably like a lot of people, where I've done quite a few different things, but there's a there's a good kind of thread throughout it where it all kind of makes sense. So I guess going right back to the beginning, um, so I studied environmental economics, so officially was kind of go to, going down the environmental path. This is well before it got kind of to the same level of popularity as it is now. <laughs> but it's always been the real kind of guiding principle I've had kind of behind everything which I've, I've done in the past. And I ended up going into quite a few different kind of commercial roles, you know, a whole variety of things from working for for BSKB, so Sky TV, through to working in government, working for an airline, working for a bank, and kind of all the way through, we were always involved in kind of disrupting things, and we we're always involved in creating customer-centric products. It's actually the role prior to this one now where we came into it, and, and the real proposition of the role was there's all this data which is emerging, there's all this new technology, and really importantly, things are becoming cheaper, so it's easier to mm. do this stuff than it was in the past, how can we solve some really meaningful problems in society with it? I actually did a whole of work on the spread of influenza about probably six years ago, kind of pre-COVID. <laughs> but we, we, we also looked at one of those topics was how do we solve traffic congestion? We're all sitting in traffic all the time. Like this is a huge waste of time and energy. Surely there's, a, you know, there's got to be a better way. Mm. Um, and then that's where we start digging deeper and digging deeper and digging deeper. What we found is that for anyone who's working on the road, it's actually quite hard to understand when you should be working, kind of where you should be working and, and the impact which it's causing. And, you know, just as a really simple analogy, even if you're the person who's controlling the project and you're physically standing on the road, you can't kind of see past the next street corner. So you don't know if the traffic's banked up for two kilometres or if it's 250 metres often. And then as we start to kind of take that pattern and lift it up, we realized how much kind of a fit and efficiency effectively was with, within the system as it is today, because we've got all this work going on, but with a real lack of meaningful insight for the people who are doing the work to understand how do they optimize that delivery? How do they think about the best way of, of delivering? Our mission is to create space for cities to thrive. 
And so what that really comes down to is going, how can we enable infrastructure? So this is, you know, your roads, water, mm. whatever it might be, to be built in harmony with the surroundings. So how do we enable this stuff, which we really want, because we want this future, right? We've got to want this future in five, 10 years' time. But how do we enable that to be much, much more efficient in the way which it's, it's been delivered? It's inter- it's good that you kind of mentioned the creating space thing because you've literally read my mind and that was one of the questions that I was thinking about. And we're like, what, what is this idea of creating space in the delivery of infrastructure and construction projects? So I'm glad you kind of jumped ahead and explained it and this idea of harmony with the environment because I think you're right that often when you see these construction projects, they're often perceived as quite disruptive and uh, disharmonious with, with the, the traffic mm. and the environment around them. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and it's, it's tricky, right? I mean, to, mm. to build the future city we want. So if you think about light rail running down George Street and things like that, we want that to come through. But the process of doing it, it's horrendous, right? I mean, it just mm. takes out a whole part of the city for a while. And, and so there's a, real, there's a real tension between those two pieces. And I think it gets even more complicated when you look at that on a one-on-one basis, that's okay. But then you start to look at a state and you start to look at all the work which is going on all the time and trying to coordinate across that. And you can see why that's that real challenge. And kind of how, how we looked at this is, you know, creating space, a, a good way to think about it was almost the analogy started by thinking about a fire break, which is like, if we could make everyone in a city just like go away for two years and then the teams could build, They'd build it really, really quickly, like, mm. you know, orders of magnitude quicker and kind of cheaper. So we're like, okay, well, that, that's an interesting observation. So obviously we don't all want to leave the city, right? That's, that's not going to work. But then you get to this point where just at a really practical level, I'll, 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 give, you, I'll give you a real example. So mm. when you've got a set of traffic lights, you've got a little sensor which sits underneath it, which tells you if there's a car there or not. With, when that's not working properly, the intersection doesn't work properly and we get held up in traffic and no one really likes it. But for the team to go fix that, they're often getting told, you can't go out to do that work until 10 o'clock at night because we're really worried that you're going to cause an impact to the local community. But then at 11 o'clock at night, a noise restriction comes into place. Uh. So this team turns up at 10 o'clock at night, they didn't need to set up, and then they need to do some work. And so they've actually probably only got about 30 minutes to do any work before the noise restrictions finish. And it doesn't matter how much time they've got after that they really only got 30 minutes to do that. So we're paying for a crew of eight people, all the traffic management to come out for a half an hour's worth of kind of work there. So that job might end up taking them two nights to do. Where What we're looking at with the movement is to go, well, if we can know that in that particular location, on that particular night, actually the traffic died at 8 o'clock at night or at 7.30 is when the evening peak finished, can we start doing that work sooner? And so it's creating these little opportunities not to cause more impact, but just to look at when is everyone left and when can we start doing the work quicker and to take that into account for all aspects of life. So uh, is there a sporting event on? Is there something else which we need to have that context of? And letting them just have that kind of smarts and intelligence to go, cool, I know that this is the right time and I'm happy to to go off and do it. Yeah, and it's interesting what you said about – restrictions and noise restrictions and then again back to the harmonious environment like for example i live down the road where they're building the crow's nest uh, metro extension in sydney and i think often we consider the impacts a lot on traffic and and vehicles and say like what you've said where you have to change maybe the traffic lights by changing the scats underlying because of trucks coming in and out and all that kind of stuff. But then there's also the impact on pedestrians as well because at mm. the, path, the pathway up 
up along the Pacific Highway, for example, is only open between certain hours because they're doing construction at other times of the day. And it's as a resident, it's very weird to try and have to remember which put footpaths are, are open at which particular hours. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, you know, when we talk about creating space internally and, and we unpack it, and this is where our logo comes from as well. So there's mm. kind of three circles in, in each other. The outer circle, that's creating a space to move. So that's how do we nudge the public? So how do we inform the public and just give people better advice so they either avoid the area or they know what to do and when to do it? And funny enough, that alone can often make massive differences into the delivery time frame. Let's just help the public not get caught in this so we like it, we don't get stuck in traffic, and, and they get a better setup. You then that second piece which you talked about, that's the inner circle, which is the middle circle for us, so creating a space to operate. So that's how do, how do I know when to start, when to finish, can I run more trucks, all of those kind of operational questions, which is the bulk of the, like, the big dollars. And then the inner circle is actually, funny enough, really, really important, which is creating a space for action. So normally what comes up with this is there's a few people, like, you know, you might be a local resident and you go, well, this makes total sense. Like, why aren't they doing it this way? And you might get the guys on the ground, the construction team going, this makes total sense. We could totally do it this way. (laughs) But the reality is that there's a lot of other people involved and a lot of people are really, really worried about complaints, right? So you might have a local MP or you might have someone else who's really concerned about something. And at the moment, there's no real way to have this evidence base for what's actually happening, right, versus what people think is happening. And so that's where that inner circle for us comes down to, like, how do we create an evidence base so you can have conversations with key stakeholders, whether they be, you know, Westfield, who's got the mall there, or a bus company or an MP, about what's really happening. Because if you both understand what that impact on journey is, journey times are, then you can make the best trade-off, right? It's not going to be perfect, but you make that best trade-off. And, and so we see those three elements coming together. So how do you get the, the buy-in to do what you're doing? How do you do what you're doing more effectively? And how do you kind of manage that ripple effect um, out to the community? And for our logo, they're deliberately offset and they're deliberately unbalanced because it's a constant battle to be trying to keep them in sync and in balance um, an environment which keeps moving. That's such a cool and, and thoughtful way of coming up with a logo as well. Like that, It does very nicely lead on to my next question, which is about before this podcast, we had a discussion that it's often the small and the unsexy things that matter the most and that mm. it's the, the small improvements to the process and the planning and their role in an infrastructure or construction project that deliver the big difference or deliver those differences uh, faster. Uh, so what are probably some examples that are of those small or the unsexy changes that you can focus on to deliver mm. big differences in projects? There's this real desire to make sure that us as a public don't get impacted. So we put these mm. firm rules down, which are absolutely the right thing to do. The only thing is those rules, you know, Sydney's a big city, right? So you mm-hmm. can't know every single street in every different context for every different time of the year. So those rules are logically kind of blunt and, and uh, reasonably conservative. What we then find, you know, this is the crazy thing we find is going, maybe you're doing footpaths work, right? So you're, mm-hmm. you're repairing some footpaths and you're repairing some driveways. Now, if you get an extra half an hour to finish a concrete job, that might mean that you don't need to come back the next day and it actually skips an entire day out of your schedule because one, you, you, know, you know, the next day you're going to turn up, you're going to do two hours worth of work, but you can't do anything else because that concrete's got to cure before you do the section. Mm. So it's often these really weird things when you get down into the delivery of it where you're going, okay, that 
that extra half an hour, an hour, saves an entire day off the program. Now, are we willing to make that trade-off? We're doing something near Parramatta. And if we took one lane out of the traffic going towards the shopping centre, it was going to reduce the length of work by about 40%. Mm. But it's really hard. How do you have that conversation about, is that a trade-off which is willing? In that location, they could take that lane out, and it really didn't impact anything at all. So, yeah, well, yeah, we'd be, we'd be totally happy to make that trade-off. Interesting because it almost sounds like besides the opportunity cost, there's like a framing and a perspective problem where people are thinking of like the short term where, oh, it'll it'll take an extra half an hour today, but then it's not, they're not thinking about the fact that that extra 30 minutes today means, you know, you don't have to come back the next day and have two hours worth of work. Mm. I think the thing which I've loved the most is that often from a public perspective, it hasn't caused more of an issue. So we don't even really need a communicate it just kind of happens mm. and I mean as a general rule I don't really care <laughs> as long as it doesn't impact <laughs> me it's like kind of kind of go through the only thing and then we've found interestingly enough within the industry so your local governments and your kind of state governments and then also the contractors and people doing the work a lot of them are quite actually open to this idea they've mm. just really struggled because um, it requires a lot of trust with everyone else in the system so at least if you've got that ability to kind of audit what's going on you know, you're kind of giving someone the keys to do whatever they want. And so that's where I think a lot of this is this is broken down. And, you know, I really like the way you framed the start of that question because really the biggest thing which we're, I guess, communicating or trying to get people comfortable with is the status quo is you get given this rule set. And that rule set, you know, in some, some of the states we're dealing with hasn't probably changed for 10 to 15 years, mm-hmm. let alone like project to project, right? Um, <laughs> And then that that rule set as well applies for the whole job. So you might be there for a year and you get given these rules and you've got to abide by them. Our whole mantra is, well, everything changes all the time. So like, can we just figure out what is actually happening versus what we thought would happen? And how do we adjust to make the most of that? So it's this whole feedback loop you're bringing in to go like, what have we learned? How does it change it? You know, and how do we adjust? And it could it could be negative as well, right? Like maybe a high-rise building starts going up next to you and you're suddenly causing more problems. That means you should adjust the other way as well. So it's not always a, a kind of win, but it's just being cognizant and aware of what's going on. Are there, un, are there any other ways or, or aspects in that community engagement so that you can kind of like, ugh, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this question. So it's like there's benefits for road users as well as those who are building the infrastructure. Um, mm. How how can you foster community engagement in these or interest, I guess? Mm-hmm. I, did, I think it'd be, I think it'd be a really interesting one um, from a couple of different angles. So if you think mm. of say Waze and which is one of the kind of Google kind of side mm. projects there where you can tag if there's a, uh, item on the motorway or if there's a crash around. I think if you if you give people value back from what they do, then then they'll use it. So to give you a practical example, which we've been looking at, which I think could work quite well, actually, we've got a project coming up in New Zealand, which is a, a peninsula, right? So everyone lives down this peninsula and everyone has to go mm-hmm. through this bottleneck. So that's why they're trying to fix it from a traffic project perspective. And I was, I was thinking, and we send proactive notifications to the construction crews, right? So we tell them in real time if there's an issue on site. And we're going, well, why don't we send that to the public as well? So we could create something where, as a member of the public, you hear about this project, you go to the site and go, look, I'm going to opt in. I drive to work Monday to Friday. Can you please tell me if there's a big issue? Mm-hmm. And then we could send them really targeted messages back to the public, which goes, hey, look, there's actually something's happened. Traffic's really bad. If you could delay your trip, 
by half an hour an hour it might might make a big difference and so i think if we constantly think about how we can provide value back to the public we'll actually get them engaging in the projects that they're more genuinely interested because most of us will do something if there's a benefit there for us what we won't do is we won't go onto some project website every morning before we walk out the door to try to understand if something's going on or not right that's just that's just Mm. not rational or logical yeah i was curious about whether you've noticed any influences from the pandemic or just like different lockdown laws. So I know in Australia, less so this time around, but the first time when the government put in mobility restrictions, traffic, Mm. just traffic volumes dropped absolutely enormously because it was like Mm. the long weekend in Easter as well back in April. And I wonder if, if there's, does that make infrastructure projects like easier or harder um, it, it's, funny enough, it's a bit of both, right? Mm. And at the start, we thought it would just be easier because we were like, mm. great, everyone's not here. <laughs> Construction continu- continu- can continue. This is brilliant. Like, let's get on with that. What we found, though, is like, especially in this lockdown, a lot of the number of workers on site is constrained and there's some ah. other constraints in the system. But then what also happens is you think a lot of these things are planned over three, four years. So you start to get this rolling issue of like dates changing and one company needs to finish up before the next company can start. And that's all getting kind of cascading and rolling. And then if you think about what they really struggle with today is that variability. And that's why we've got these really kind of hard limits on there. And so the variability has just gone through the roof. And so that's this piece when you've got an industry which is relying on data, which is six months, 12 months, a couple of years old often, that's become really hard for them if they don't have a way to point to what is actually going on now and how does it compare? Yeah, that's interesting. It's, yeah, I could see how it could be both. You would think that initially it would be really, it would be great because of the lack of mobility, less people, less cars. Mm. But then it, it also makes it very unpredictable because you've never had data to, to show anything historically that may reflect what people might be doing in this situation when they're not staying home like they're meant to. <laughs> Totally. I did, and it's, it's well, beyond, well beyond the kind of delivery aspect as well. So mm. the one which I thought was quite fascinating is, um, you know, within Australia, construction and infrastructure, construction was booming. So there's a massive amount of spend which is going on. Now, one of the primary ways governments boost an economy during something like COVID is to spend money on infrastructure. So we've seen mm. infrastructure featuring quite heavily as part of this piece about trying to boost economies, right? But companies need to win that work. So the effort to win that work is really important. The effort to win that work takes people off live projects. Mm. So oddly enough, like we've seen the amount of forward work kind of go up at an industry horizon level, but that's five to 10 years, right? So it's like one to one to 10 years out. But that's actually impacted some of the near-term work because everyone's had to scramble to try to position themselves to win the work. And there's actually been a gap with some of the near-term projects kind of because of that. And we've also seen from, say, the state authorities often, as they've gone into lockdowns, it's been harder for them to release those smaller pieces of work while they're working remotely and through some of the things which they need to go to. So you get this kind of weird mix of like, there's kind of more work coming out, but then there's gluts in the work, and then there's a really big bulge coming up ahead, and there's another glut. And um, it's a really fascinating thing if you're looking at the sustainability of the industry. It's really hard for them because you know, they've got all their people and everything else, so they need consistent work. And where you get this real ebbs and flows, it's, it's a real challenge. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I also wanted to pick your brain a little bit on, on this idea of sustainability and innovation and infrastructure. 
the potential for IoT or the Internet of Things on urban planning is huge and kind of even bigger for national carbon footprints. How can software as a service initiatives or or innovation from private companies help address maybe larger state or government goals around kind of environmental and sustainability? Look, it's it's such an exciting space. And Mm. for me here, the the one which probably often doesn't get emphasized. So, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I've kind of heard about IoT before and I've heard about these devices. And, you know, (laughs) that's 10 years ago and nothing's really changed. Like, why should I believe it now? Um, there's a really important lesson in cost over time. And so and you guys must see this in, in the work which you do. It's just mm. the, the, the cost to have things in the, in the real world now broadcasting back are just so much cheaper. The cost of storing that information is cheaper and the cost of doing something with that information is a lot cheaper, which is just enabling a lot more possibilities. And then I think getting businesses which come and build technology on top of that to go, you've got a really specific challenge which you're looking at. How do I help make that relevant? So mm-hmm. one of the problems which we've got in, in a kind of infrastructure city space is it's one of those kind of lagging sectors for productivity gain. So if you look mm-hmm. at a really macro level after the last 30, 50 years, there's a whole heap of industries which have seen some really significant improvements in productivity. So you think like manufacturing and, and things like that, there's just completely game-changing. What we're seeing though is there's a couple of these kind of industries which are which haven't had that transition yet. So healthcare is definitely one of them. Yeah. The kind of government and um, construction side is definitely one of them as well. There is actually already quite a lot of information which is available, but it's really hard to get to. And I think the piece which is helping with the IoT side is that that data is easier to capture. It's more timely. So that combined with you know providers who are turning that into useful input is going to materially change what and how we can make decisions as a society. Yeah, and I definitely resonate with this idea of the cost over time with uh, WA or Western Australian uh, government came out with a report in 2015 about connected vehicles and applying innovation to infrastructure and roads and road safety. And they were like, oh, it's such a cool opportunity, but like the technology doesn't exist. So we're going to have to wait until either 5G becomes a thing or there's mm. more widespread use. And then five, six years later, that's exactly what's happening. And it's become so much more accessible. Yeah, no, in really short order. And this is where... I'm probably slightly wrongly on my side. I tried not to talk too much about the really pointy end of stuff too much. There's a lot of people here that, and they love it, but it's not that practical. Mm. And just go like, you know, there's things we can do this quarter, you know, in six months, in a year's time, which get us on that journey. And I think if we start chipping those things off, it's amazing what you can get. Speaking of that digital transformation and kind of data renaissance, I, mm. as my last kind of question, I wanted to know, in your opinion, how do you think an increase in both the volume and the accessibility of data about transport and infrastructure will impact the way that we build our cities into the future? Oh, great good question. question. <laughs> yeah, very good question. This could, this could go so many different yeah. ways, right? So <laughs> I, well, one of the facts I really struggle with is the way which we plan our work, and when I mean plan our work, I mean planning at a 20 to 40 year horizon, mm. is kind of based on a set of data, which kind of makes sense, but it doesn't really matter, right? It's an assumption, yeah. it's a set of value judgments. That same frame is being used to execute and then also measure success on it. And the measure success probably is not so bad, but the execution really doesn't work that well. 
So, so it's, it's a really interesting mix, I think, which we'll need to turn around our view of what are we actually looking to achieve? Mm-hmm. And so I actually think the most powerful thing which we can do in this place is really think about how do we want to plan? Like what, what is what is the urban design look like? And then how do we become more flexible about how that comes to life? So if you're planning on a 20 year horizon, you make your plan now and in 15 years time, something kind of changes, right? And in that time, so much has changed. There's this really interesting aspect, I think, for us about what, what data we hold to really strongly because it's a good indicator of the outcome which we want. So I think IoT and more data coming through will help us understand the metrics we really care about. So does, does it take me less than 30 minutes to get to where I need to in the city? Like, is, um, am I more productive? Some of those measures, which we've never been able to get before. Mm. But I think we'll have to be really, really careful not to get swamped in a bunch of the other stuff which comes through, which will be eminently measurable, but won't really help us actually determine what we want. There's a, a great quote from a, a guy that I also interviewed for the podcast called David Brown that's really stuck with me. And he says that big data can be one kilometre wide and one millimetre thick. And I think it's yeah. such a good, like, yeah. just... Yeah thing to keep in mind when we're talking about volume of data doesn't necessarily mean better no well so i can't remember exactly i used to have a data science quite a big data science team but you want like the volume the frequency the Mm. depth of it there's so many aspects to that yeah it's just it's just fascinating right so Mm. i mean fundamentally there's a lot which needs to change about how we think about decision making and why we think about decision making in the way which we do and if we do that right, it'll be a massive big add to us. If we do that wrong, we'll probably just get ourselves further into a path which isn't necessarily the right path. Yeah, it's very exciting as well to kind of hear about this upheaval of traditional planning processes where you would have, you know, a company go to a, a big consulting firm and they'd be like, mm. oh, well, the project's 20 years long, so let's divide the estimated cost per year by 20 years and that's roughly what you would pay. And it's mm. so frustrating because it's, that you know, you, you can't guarantee that the cost one year is going to be exactly the same as the other. So it's great mm. to kind of have people in the space who are looking at that differently and planning to just disrupt it. It's very, it's very cool. Well, I mean, this is something which people even struggle with, even in tech businesses, right? So a lot of people mm. still look at the cost, like, should we build this thing? How much is it going to cost us to build this feature? And a really good way to flip it around is going, well, look, if I've got a software dev team, I know what that software dev team costs to run, you know, mm-hmm. each year. So you go, like, each squad's a million dollars a year. So if my cost isn't changing, how do I flip this around to think about what's the amount of value I can produce over a set amount of time? Now, that's so much more useful, right? Because often when you scope a project, you scope a project fully and you do them all fully, but you might actually reach most of the benefit quite early on in that and it'd be better for you to move on to something else. And so this is what I really like about what's coming on in the kind of government infrastructure sector. So mm-hmm. the, with the Sydney maintenance contracts, which have just been um, awarded now for the next 9 to 15 years, that's been a really significant change. So those contracts were all about people, purpose, and place. So they're giving um, contractors a set amount of money each year, and then the idea is to go like, how do we make the best decisions to enable people, purposes, uh, people, places, and, and the purpose of that trip, yeah. and be a lot more flexible about what that looks like over time. Yeah, I think I'm kind of like, you can't see me, but I'm furiously nodding at the idea of people, purpose and place because I I was talking to another lady called Rachel Smith and it was exactly what she said, that she lives by this mantra of solving real problems for real people in real places. And I think that Mm. that's such an important 
focus to bring back with this whole idea of people-centric design coming back and just mm. having having the environment a little bit more involved so it's not so insular. Totally. And, and, and you know, this is a really exciting space because then if you go, well, we'll use this new data and the new visibility we can get through technology to make sure we're informing those decisions in the right way, you know, two massive thumbs up, we're going to do really well. We're going to make a lot of probably quite small tweaks, but revolutionary mm. tweaks in how we do stuff. Yes. Well, Misha, thank you so much for chatting to me a bit today all about kind of the trade-offs and that trust and the, particularly that idea of how do we build community engagement in infrastructure projects. It's been super, super interesting. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Emily. If you'd like to know more about Misha or Movin, you can visit their website, which is movin.com, spelt M-O-O-V-E-N. Alternatively, if you'd like to know more about Bitesize or Compass IoT, the company that produces this podcast, you can visit our website, which is compassiot.com.au. Until next time.